<laughs> Thank you very much. Oh, we've been talking about connecting, connecting with one another and connecting with God. And this morning, I'm going to talk a little bit more. Dave, could you turn me down just a little bit? It's kind of ringing in my ears. Thanks. I'm going to talk about two more ways that we can easily connect with God this morning. It's note sheets are being passed out as I speak. So... John Maxwell, in his book, Partners in Prayer, relates this story. In the summer of 1876, grasshoppers nearly destroyed the crops in the state of Minnesota. In the spring of 1987, then, farmers were a bit worried. They believed that the dreadful plague would once again visit them and again destroy their wheat crop, bringing ruin to literally thousands of people and their homes and farms. The situation was so serious that the governor of Minnesota at the time, John S. Pillsbury, proclaimed April 26th as a day of prayer and fasting. He urged every man, woman, and child to ask God to prevent this terrible thing from happening. On that April day, all schools, shops, stores, offices were closed. There was this reverent, quiet hush over the entire state. The next day dawned bright and clear. Temperatures soared to what they ordinary, ordinarily were in midsummer, which was kind of unusual for April. Minnesotans were devastated as they discovered billions of grasshopper larvae wiggling to life in their fields. For three days, this unusual heat persisted and the larvae hatched. It appeared that it wouldn't be long before they started feeding on and destroying the wheat crop. On the fourth day, however, the temperature suddenly dropped. That night, frost covered the entire state. The result? It killed every one of those creepy, crawly little pests as surely as if they had been poisoned or been put to fire. It went down in history, the history of Minnesota, as the day God answered the prayers and the fasting of his people. Prayer and fasting. Two weeks ago, I talked about prayer, so today I want to talk about connecting with God through the avenue of fasting. I've preached on fasting before, so I don't really intend to go back and do that again today. In fact, I think fasting is something like prayer in that we talk a lot more about it than we actually do it. And so my point in this is not to educate you more on fasting. It's to kind of open your eyes to the avenue of fasting and challenging you to step into that particular way of communicating and connecting with God. The National Prayer and Fasting Conference announcement read like this, which is kind of an example, I think, of, of how we think of fasting. The cost to attend today's fasting and prayer conference includes meals. See, some of you had a hard time getting that. Okay, having said that, I did want to include it in the series of Connecting with God because I believe it is a great way to deepen our connection, deepen our intimacy with the Lord. In fact, I believe that the best motivation for fasting is to connect with God. 
There, there are a lot of other reasons or purposes in doing a fast, but I believe that the best and most important one that we can do is simply to connect with God. The, the Bible examples many different reasons for doing a fast. I'm going to give you a few of those, but I want to stop and pray first because I want you to think about these because these are, are things we should be using in our own lives as well. So why don't you join me? Let's stop and pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to come before you this morning and, and ask Holy Spirit that you would do this really practical kind of download into our brains today. We need to uh, find every avenue that we can, explore every direction we can to connect with you in a deeper and deeper intimacy with you. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes, open our ears, and connect our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. First way that, you see, that I see in the Bible for connecting for fasting is to see something supernatural happen. Uh, this happened quite a bit in the Old Testament. Uh, there would be a fast call because there was some desperate need for God to intervene in the lives of his people. After David's affair with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet comes to David, and he tells David that his child is going to die. So David goes to the Lord in prayer and fasting for that child's life. This is what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 21. David's servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, the child is, is dead at this point, you fasted and you wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. And this is really key to what David says. He's, he answers, he says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I wept and I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not come or return to me. Now, this doesn't sound like maybe the greatest example of fasting for a miracle because the miracle didn't happen, right? There are other fasts that bring miracles. I chose this one because I wanted you to see a fast that didn't work out the way that David wanted it to work out. Listen, fasting is not a genie in the bottle to get a miracle from God. You can't rub fasting and expect God to necessarily respond to it. But consider this. David goes on. David gets up. David cleans himself up, and he goes on. But a miracle does occur. It's just not one that you see. You see, from that point out, David becomes a man after God's own heart. He literally becomes the greatest king that Israel will ever have. Yes, he messed up. He got a little arrogant, and his pride took over. He took something that didn't belong to him, and he tried to make things right by doing something wrong. The consequence was horrible. But David continued to pursue God, and he literally becomes what the New Testament calls a man after God's own heart. He's great because he chose to continue to pursue God, which is the heart of why we fast in the first place. Was it a successful fast? In those terms, it was. Just not quite the way David expected it to come out or wanted it to come out, and maybe not on the surface the way we would expect it to come out or want it to come out. A miracle still happened. We can also fast for protection. 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 2, it says this, Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat is king of Israel at this time, Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Eden, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazaran Tamar, which is En Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek God. Now, this happens to be a fast that brings about a miracle, a supernatural miracle of protection. Both apply here. The abbreviated story here is one of my favorite from the Old Testament. It's that God assures Jehoshaphat that he will fight for the nation, and God does. He destroys the enemy at the hand of the enemy. Israel didn't even have to raise a sword to defeat the enemy. In fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 24, just a little ways down the, the, uh, the chapter there, it says this, When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. They hadn't even shown up for the battle yet, and everybody's dead. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder. They found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder, it took them three days to collect it. A miracle of protection, maybe even a miracle of provision included in that. But why did it happen? Because the people came together. The people from all over Judah came together to seek God and to fast before God. It's one of the things that we can do as people when we need God to protect us to go to a fast. It is a great way to connect with God. There's also fasting for God's favor. Again, one of the, the greatest stories of the Old Testament is the story of Esther, Queen Esther. She's been married to the king as part of his harem. He has many wives, okay? But in the process, her people are threatened. There's a man in the king's court that wants all of the Jews exterminated. He has a grudge against them. And he's kind of bent the king's ear towards doing this. And in order to save her people, Esther needs to go before the king and figure out a way to gain his favor. There's one problem with that. To go before the king unannounced, uninvited, can mean your death. It's just the custom of the land. And the king's nobles would have asked for it. There's only one provision for that. If when someone shows up, the king will extend to that person his favor, then that person's life will be spared and they'll get an audience before the, the king. This is what it says in Esther chapter 4, verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Mordecai is her uncle who's telling her what's going on with the people. She said, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther's about to put her life on the line for her people. So she asks Uncle Mordecai 
to go to the people and have them fast for her. She needs favor with the king or her life is over. That's a reason for execution. The short story here is that Esther is honored by the king. He just, he loves Esther. And she's this gorgeous, beautiful woman, and he, and he extends his favor to her when he sh- she shows up at the court. So fasting for the favor of God and or men is a biblical purpose for a fast. It's not a wrong thing to do. There's also fasting of repentance. The story of Jonah, I think, is one of the most amazing yet disappointing stories of the Old Testament. It's amazing in so much as God does some amazing miracles, some of the most amazing miracles ever recorded in the Old Testament in the life of the prophet Jonah, getting swallowed by a great big fish and then spit out three days later on land. That's pretty amazing, you know, and actually living through the experience is, well, pretty supernatural. But the most amazing miracle, I believe, in the book of Jonah is that once Jonah gets spit out onto the land, he goes to Nineveh where he's he's been trying to avoid Nineveh. He does not like the Ninevites. They are barbaric people. They are cannibalistic. They are the scourge of the earth. And Jonah does not want to go to these people. God has called him to preach to these people and to tell them that they're going to be destroyed by the hand of God. Jonah doesn't want to... He wants them destroyed. He doesn't want them to have any chance at all because he reckons in his mind that if they repent, God will spare them. After he gets spit out of the fish, he kind of gives up and he goes to to Nineveh anyway. And he preaches this message of doom. He doesn't want the Ninevites to repent. He wants God to destroy them. So let me ask you, how good a sermon do you think that was? Yeah. Yeah. But listen to what happened in Jonah chapter 3. On the first day, first day after he gets spit out of the fish, okay, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's a great repent message, isn't it? Yeah, your doom is coming. Look out. 40 days, you're, you're gone. But the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. All of them, from the greatest to the least, Put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is uh, basically your um, homeless people's clothes in, in our, our, our day and age, your rags, okay? That's, it's, that's what they did back then. And they would actually put ashes on their head and, and all kinds of things. Basically, that was an idea of, of humiliation before God to humble themselves. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued this proclamation to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. They dressed up their their cows back then. It was kind of interesting. We dress our dogs, but they dress their cows. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he did have compassion and he did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Humbling themselves before God, fasting before God, 
as a sign of sincerity, that their heart looked the same as their actions. I believe that connecting with God in this fashion had supernatural results as well. Think about this. Did you hear what happened in that last verse? When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, their whole character changed. And it, and it didn't happen necessarily overnight, folks. It's 40 days until God destroys them. So they had some time to prove to God that they had changed their ways before God relented. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he forestalls their destruction. Connecting with God had changed them. Fasting had changed them. Fasting is just that powerful. It's about connecting to literally the source of power for our lives. And when we do that, it will change us from the inside out. It's one of the best reasons that I know for fasting is for my heart to change. We can also fast just for the purpose of connecting with God, which I think is probably one of the best. I saved it till last for this reason. I preached on it before when we were going through the book of Isaiah. Let me give you the context for this passage I'm going to read to you out of Isaiah before I read it. The people of Israel were fasting about things that had wrong motives attached to them. And they had fasted without result because their hearts just weren't right in the whole thing. They were going through the motions. They were following the rules. They were fasting while at the same time, they were mistreating their employees, they were fighting amongst themselves, and they were doing whatever they pleased, which when you, you go back to the original language, means they weren't obeying God at all. They were doing whatever they wanted to do. And then they were complaining to the prophet Isaiah, they were complaining that God wasn't coming through for them when they fasted. We fast and God doesn't answer. He wasn't hearing them. So God's like saying, okay, time out. You've missed the point of fasting altogether. So let me tell you what fasting is really all about. Here's our passage from Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Now, that's kind of significant where God puts that right up front in how he lists what is a good fast? What is the kind of fast that honors God? Because they had been mistreating their employees, their servants, okay? God is saying, you know what? This is a good fast. When you take care of the people that you have responsibility for, to loose the chains of injustice that you've put upon them, to untie the cords of the yoke, the weight, the burden that you've placed on them, and to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke, He's addressing the, the very issue that they're complaining about and not doing right. They're complaining he's not answering them, and yet they're not fasting correctly. They're not even connecting correctly with God. He goes on in verse 7, Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? In other words, the people of your own race. Then your life. Get it? Here's the qualification. Here's what I call a good fast, okay? 
to set the captive free, to provide for those who are in need. If you will do these things, verse 8, then your light will break through like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer and don't miss this. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. That's the most important part. They finally connected with God. If you will do this, if you will change the way you fast, if you will do this, if you will set the prisoner free, if you will take that burden of yoke off of them, if you will provide for the needy, then, then you'll actually be connecting with me. And when you do, I'll show up. If you will approach fasting the way I intended it, then the answer that I have for you is here am I. As I've just given you, there are several reasons for a very biblical, very good reasons, really, for fasting. But fasting is ultimately about this one thing, connecting with God. Here am I. In the New Testament, Jesus did not talk about the purpose of fasting, you know, like protection or provision or favor or anything like that. Jesus, Jesus never said a word about that. Instead, he talked about the heart behind why we fast. Why? Because ultimately, it's about connecting with God. Ultimately, we cannot connect with God through fasting if our motives are wrong or if our life isn't in tune with his purposes for us. Fasting will be nothing more than what Bill Johnson describes as a hunger strike against God. It's not supposed to be that. It's supposed to be a connection point with God, a connection point in which I get changed, hopefully changed to see more of his heart towards me and towards the situation in front of me, whatever that is. So here's your practical challenge. You know, and all of these relational things I'm, I'm doing right now, and, it, and this is all about relationship with one another and with God, I've been giving you different ways, challenging you different ways to put this stuff into action. Fasting's no different. This week, I want you to consider a time of fasting. When I fast, I fast from sunup to sundown. That is a very typical Jewish way, actually, to fast, from sunup to sundown. You can do more or you can do less. It doesn't matter, just so long as you do it. It's not so much about your reason for fasting as it is about your heart in the fast. Do it to connect with God. If there's an issue in your life, you can take that and make that your purpose for fasting, but do it to connect with God. And while you do it, ask God who you might bless during your fast. I think that's important because God said, this is the kind of fast that I'll honor. This is the kind of fast that I've chosen for you to set people free, to provide for the needy. Those are good ways to share your food with the hungry, to give the wanderer shelter, to clothe him. Those are good reasons for fasting. So there's your challenge, okay, for the week with fasting. Figure out a time where you can fast, and you can do it just as simply as sun up to sundown kind of thing. 
but do something with the fast as well. Even if you, you, you do the fast, save for the reason of God's favor, you're looking for God's favor on a particular part of your life or someone else's life, for that matter. It can be for someone else. Figure out somewhere in there how you connect with God through that fast and help someone else in the process as well. One of the things that I, that I, I think I taught on before when I went through this passage in Isaiah as we took our two-and-a-half-year trip through Isaiah is that God wants us to be very practical about how we approach Him through fasting. And the practical part of that is that you find a way to help someone. So you take the money that you saved by not eating for that day, and you give it to the rescue mission or some food shelter or some food kitchen, that kind of thing. Or maybe you find a person that's in need and you buy them a bag of groceries. Any of those ways works. The second way I want to talk to you this morning about connecting with God is through my favorite way to connect with God. Bar none, my favorite way to connect with God, and that's worship. Worship opens the floodgates of heaven for his presence to come in, for us to connect literally with the manifest presence of God. Think about worship, though. It is not an end in itself. I love the way Eugene Peterson describes what real worship is. He says this, Worship does not satisfy our hunger for God. Okay, that sounds weird, doesn't it? Worship does not satisfy our hunger for God. It whets our appetite. Our need for God is not taken care of by engaging in worship. It simply deepens. It overflows the hour and permeates the week. That's what worship can do for us in connecting with God. Worship really is about just that one thing, connecting with God. That's why worship can look so very different in every church across the planet. People connect with God in all sorts of ways through worship. And listen, God shows up in all sorts of ways and places because people are expecting to connect with Him through worship. It doesn't matter what it looks like. Years ago, as a minister of music, I heard a lot about this thing we called worship wars, uh, the war between using hymns in the church and using praise songs. Now, everything we did this morning was praise songs. We rarely ever do a hymn. I get it. I understand that. We're not a, a hymn-based kind of worship church, and that's okay. I grew up on the hymns. I love the hymns. You know, they're, they're precious to me. But what I realized back then was all of this worship war between hymns and praises was foolishness. It is absolute, utter foolishness. Those people who wanted to sing hymns did so because it was their way of connecting with God, of laying their heart on the altar before God and saying, here I am, God. I give you everything that I am. And I love that about worship. It doesn't matter whether you use hymns or praise courses. Because the people using praise courses were doing exactly the same thing, laying their heart on the altar before God. In fact, that is my goal and my motivation when I get up here to lead worship on a Sunday morning, is to provide a platform where you can come and put your heart before God. If using praise courses doesn't work for you, you'll probably find a different church because we just don't do many hymns. But it doesn't matter because it's authentic either way you go because it's about putting your heart before God. There's nothing wrong with the different styles that we have. 
Gary Thomas, he's a friend of Rick Warren, noticed that many Christians were stuck in what he called a worship rut. And he raised this question, since God has intentionally made us all different, why should everyone be expected to connect with God in the same way? Gary has discovered that for 2,000 years, Christians have used many different paths to enjoy intimacy with God. In his book, Sacred Pathways, Gary defines nine ways that people draw near to God. I'm going to go over those nine ways. Music is just one of them, okay? Happens to be my favorite, okay? But music is just one of them, okay? And he doesn't actually even list music as a way, but it's, it's in there. It's in a couple of them, actually. Here are the ways that he says people tend to connect with God. And connecting with God is all about worship, okay? You cannot connect with God apart from worshiping Him. Because when you get in His presence, you won't be able to do anything less. But here's some of the ways that Gary's discovered that people connect with God. He has, there's the naturalist connection. A naturalist will love God best when they're outdoors observing, participating in nature. Anybody connect with God that way? Yeah. I love to connect with God that way. I, do, I love to be outdoors. In fact, you know, even as uh, somebody who, who likes to exercise anything, I had the option of, you know, running inside, you know, on a treadmill or going outside. I'm outside every time. I like being outside. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Nature proclaims the majesty and glory of God. It's a great way to connect with God. And that's what a naturist will do. Then there's the sensates. They're all about their senses. They are most connected with God when their senses are engaged. You know what your five senses are? Okay? That's how they connect with God. When they're stimulated on more than one level at a time, then they can really feel like they're connected with God. But they want to feel, they want to sense God's touch. They want to see God. They want to hear God. They even want to smell God. I know that sounds a little strange, but God is like that. I mean, there, there's this kind of a holy aroma thing that can happen when the Holy Spirit shows up. Yeah. Traditionalists love God when they're close to their rituals, symbols, the things that are familiar to them. You know, I, I know a lot of Catholics who will never leave the Catholic Church, but it doesn't mean that they're not born again, spirit-filled Christians. They just can't let go of their traditions and stuff long enough to be comfortable anywhere else. And that's okay. If they connect with God and they can, they can put their heart on the altar through those rituals, it's still connecting with God. It's still connecting with God. Blessed are those, Psalm 65, blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. People who connect best with God in that familiar setting of church, okay? We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. People who are traditionalists like that kind of connection with God. They probably wouldn't be comfortable sitting around round tables, you know, with their cup of coffee and their Bible and their, their notes and stuff like that. They, they need a, a bit more form in order to be comfortable and put their heart on the altar before God. Aesthetics love God best in the solitude of their lives and the simplicity 
of things, and so they'll find ways to get alone. Jesus mirrors that for us. Jesus was often found going off by himself to pray, to get alone with God. That's one of the things that he did, and it's a great way to connect with God. I like to connect with God that way. I like to take you know, an afternoon off and go sit on the beach, just sit in the sand and read my Bible and, and talk to God. It's a great way to connect with God. Activists, which is not much like me, but activists love God best when they're battling injustice and evil. They're the people that, you know, just, it breaks their heart to see bad things happen and to see sin continue. And so they get out their signs and they pick it and they, they do whatever it takes to let people know that there's something better out there for them, okay? Sometimes they can be a little bit insensitive, but it's what gives them purpose and connection with God because they feel like that's, that's what God called them to. Your typical prophet is that way. person who has that kind of profiting gift, you know, they see things black and white, and they have no problem telling people about what's black and white. But they feel close to God when they do that, and I believe that they are. That's how they connect. Caregivers. Some of you are caregivers. Caregivers love God best through caring for people who hurt. They mimic Jesus the healer. They mimic Jesus, the man of compassion. And it's what connects them to God. It's just one more path to connecting with God. Enthusiasts, and here's where I would put our worshipers, okay? Enthusiasts love God best by experiencing celebration. Psalm 145 says, They will celebrate your abundant goodness with joyful uh, singing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. We like to celebrate that. I like to celebrate that. You know, that's why most of the songs that we sing, I'm, I'm always for the upbeat stuff. You know, the, the slower songs are fine and that's good, you know, but I like celebration. I want us to celebrate. I want people to stand up and raise their hands and clap and, and you know, if you're comfortable dancing, you go for it. You know, David danced before the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. I think David was this kind. He was an enthusiast in many ways. He could be quiet before God. We can see that in the Psalms that he wrote. But he also loved to celebrate before God. Contemplated love God best through adoration, through meditation. They love just to sit and contemplate all that God is for them, all that he is and all that he is for them. Intellectuals, and I relate to this one as well, though I wouldn't call myself an intellectual. But intellectuals love God best when their mind is fully engaged. I love to study. It's just one of the things that I, that I like to do. And uh, I, I do. I connect with God, especially when I sit down on Saturday nights and I'm putting my sermon together. Uh, to me, that's like, that can be like walking into his presence. Sometimes it can be incredibly frustrating, okay? But it's the working through the mental part of it, working through putting it all together, that I feel closest to him when I do that. And so I can relate to people who are like that. In, in those, did you find a way that you approach God? Anybody? Is anyone still awake? Oh, okay. If you found a way that you approach God, exploit that thing, okay? Do more of it because it's probably something that God has placed in you that he wants to use to connect with you. Don't shy away from it. Figure it out, and then go for it, and go for it in spades, because all of them are good. 
All of them are right because all of them have the same end, to connect your heart to the heart of God. It's not about style because all the styles are good. So I would encourage you in, in this as well. Pick a style you've never tried before too. Maybe you're an enthusiast and you're like me, you just like to celebrate and stuff like that. Maybe try the aesthetics thing. You know, get alone with God. Go sit on a beach with your Bible and, you know, just spend some time talking to God. Let Him speak to you through the Word of God or through the Holy Spirit. But get alone with God. Just give it a try. If you're an aesthetic, then, you know, maybe try something a little different. Maybe go for the enthusiasts kind of thing. And just let yourself go for once. You know, when you start worshiping, throw your hands up. No, not like this. Okay, you know, this is... This, this is how aesthetics tend to do celebration, if they get them that high at all, kind of thing. Now, just go for it. Give it a try. Break loose. You might find that, you know, you really enjoy that and you connect with God. Personally, I relate to and practice almost all of these. It's just the activist thing is probably the most uncomfortable for me. But let me give you a clue. It's not about what you do it is about how much of you does God have when you do it, okay? There are some of these things that you'll like more than others, and that's okay because that's how God made you. That's the challenge, though. Try something new or dive into the one that you know you connect with and dive into it deeper. Do the naturalist thing. Do the sensate thing. Uh, do the traditionalist thing, the aesthetics thing, the activist thing, the caregiver thing, the enthusiast, contemplatives, or the intellectuals. Just try one. The point is not how well a particular way or pathway to intimacy with God works for you. It's just to broaden your approach to God and perhaps give you an appreciation for yet another way to connect with God. You know, one thing I've noticed is that we're pretty good about judging other people, especially when it comes to how we connect with God in worship. I believe that's because we've often limited our perspective to the way we do it or the way we've always done it. I've heard those phrases before. So try something new. Get a different perspective. It's okay. One of the things about these weekly challenges that I give you before I close today, you can try them or you can ignore them. That's up to you. They're only designed to help you, hopefully, connect with God and with one another. But they only work if you actually do them. We all have plenty to do in this hurried world that we live in. I get that. I understand that. I think I probably understand it as well as most people do. But here's the deal. We get done pretty much what we decide we want to get done in this life. A friend of mine this week reminded me that I really don't have an excuse for failing to do what I should do. Excuses are the nails used to build a house of failure. We're pretty good at excuses, aren't we? Got an excuse for everything. But excuses are simply the nails we use to build a house of failure. I don't know about you, but as a contractor, that idea doesn't appeal to me too much. I'm pretty sure it doesn't appeal to God either. God is looking for something else. God is looking for fanatics. Probably didn't know that, 
people of such great devotion that they kind of look a little crazy to the rest of the world. Now, I'm an Oakland Raiders fan, so I've seen some real crazies. <laughs> yeah, I'm not one for, you know, dressing up and all that stuff, you know, but you've seen them on TV or at the game, been to a game, okay? They're crazy. They're absolutely nuts, even though we lose. They're crazy, but they're fans, and it doesn't matter that they lose, okay? The team's losing. They're fans. They're not going to stop being fans, and they get excited about it. I've often wondered why we as a church of God aren't more like crazy football fans when it comes to God. Did you know that the early church had such a zeal for Jesus that they were known as fanatics, which is where we get the word fan, okay? They were fans of Jesus. They were fanatics. It's true. The word enthusiasm, Greek, comes from their extreme devotion to the church, and it originally meant God within. That's what enthusiasm meant, to have God within. If we're ever going to defeat the devil, folks, if we are going to make a difference, we got to pray, Lord, make me a fan of Jesus, a fanatic for Jesus. You see, fans arrive early to the game, don't they? They can't wait to get things started. It's where tailgate came from. That's right. I have yet to see a tailgate party in the church of a parking lot, or a church's parking lot, okay? They seldom wander in during the third inning of a baseball game or the second quarter of a football game. Fans don't care when they get home. They love extra innings and sudden death overtimes. Don't get any ideas about death, okay? They're not pew warmers, okay, in the stadium seats. They're not worried about the pot roast that's in the oven or the barbecue they're going to have. They actually already had the barbecue before the game. Fans are vocal. Fans are vocal. They don't sit and spectate. They participate. Fans can endure almost anything. Football at 40 degrees below zero. Baseball when it's hot enough to pop popcorn without the microwave oven. They don't think of excuses to miss. They think of reasons to go. Fans want the best seat in the house. The closer to the action, the better. So all of you are going to be down front next week. <laughs> Fans never want to miss a game. Never want to miss a game. They'll see it in person, and then they'll watch the replay on TV because they put it on their DVR. And then they'll read about it in the newspaper because they want to hear what everybody else said about it. They can't wait to get to work on Monday after the Sunday night football game so they can talk to everybody about the Sunday night football game. Folks, the church needs fans, fanatics. Fans know trivia statistics about their favorite players, don't they? Far too many believers can't name three of the 12 apostles, much less what they accomplished. Seriously, something's out of whack when we get more excited about a white ball going over the back fence than we do about worshiping the one true God. Fans don't find time to watch the game. They make time. They get done what they want to get done in this life, don't they? 
We all choose our life. We all choose our life. No one chooses it for us. We get done what we want to get done. The only question we need to ask ourselves is what do we really want? Jesus turned the world upside down with just 12 men, 12 fanatics, 12 fans of Jesus. Now, the world can be reached for Christ, and the church can be victorious, but it will never happen until the church converts into real fans for Jesus. That's precisely, folks, what he called us to be. So, you have choices this week. You can try the fasting thing, or you cannot. You can do the worship thing, or you cannot. You will have the life you choose this week. All I'm doing is offering you a way, an idea, to help you better connect with God this week. Because I believe if we better connect with God week in and week out, it will change us. And if it changes us, it will change our community. And if it changes our community, it will change our state. And if it changes our state, it will change our country. And if it changes our country, it can change the world. That's just the simple truth. What will you do with the challenge? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this really is where kind of the rubber meets the road, Father, because you won't do this part for us. In fact, you've left it for us to do. You gave us this free will to choose, to either connect with you or not to connect with you, to choose the life that we want because you desired, Father, that we would choose. You wanted to connect with us because we wanted to connect with you. And so you gave us this ability, and what we do with it is ours to determine. You don't force yourself on us. You just simply open the door and make an incredible invitation to step into your presence. Father, I pray that as, our, as we go through this week, Father, that we would look for the open door that we would even pursue the open door. If we have to, that we would bang down any doors that, that keep us from the open door, any walls, any attitudes, any hindrances at all. We would just bull right through them so that we can get to your presence and become a people of your presence. In fact, Father, I declare over us as a people today that we will connect with you in ways this week that we've never experienced before. And in doing so, we will experience an intimacy that we've never known before. In Jesus' name, amen.